Welcome to episode 84 of G.I. Joburg. Tonight, or today, or in the morning, we are discussing Ghost in the Shell, as well as other things related to Ghost in the Shell and G.I. Joe-related stuff that relates to Ghost in the Shell. <laughs> it's convoluted, just like Ghost in the Shell. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, with the new movie coming out starring Scar jo, or Scarlett Johansson as she's known to people who aren't into her, we thought, hey, this is a good time to talk about tech-related G.I. Joe stuff, as well as talk about the movie for a bit and the ideas that it has going on in it. So, welcome to this episode, and as always, I'm joined by a cadre of people. And in a unique twist on the usual, three of us are in the same location. And the two people who are with me here in that location are... Paul's in Cape Town! Cyber Steven! I'm here to kick Robert's ass if he steps out of line! <laughs> And across the drink. <laughs> I should have said something cool like that. You should have. It's, it's too late now. It's too late. Sorry, we're moving on. We're, we're editing live. Um, and across the drink, we have our perpetual, our uh, imminent collaborator. Stalwart, if you will. Our animal companion. I said you're digging a hole, gents. Um, yeah, you got me on the West Coast. Cujo, half man, half machine, as always. Which half? <laughs> <laughs> My heart's all real. That's good to hear. Yeah, so we're all in the house. We're all in the in the the Kuja house. I was gonna say that's weird. Um, not the penthouse. That's <laughs> another podcast that you should check out. Ask Kujo for the ticket down the rabbit hole. What am I even saying? I don't know. It's been a long day. Who knows? So guys, who's seen this movie? I have. Me too. Me three. Kujo. Oh yeah. It would be a bit awkward if, if one of us hadn't, and, and the rest of us were kind of like spoiling it for him. I think before we get any further, we need to unpack some, some Ghost in the Shell mythology, because this is, after all, a G.I. Joe podcast, and you might, dear listener, not be au fait with the Ghost in the Shell concept. So, Robert, if you please. Excellent. Um, so basically, Ghost in the Shell um, started out as a, a manga in Japan, and morphed over time into anime films as well as TV series. But the core concept of this entire thing is the concept of the ghost in the shell, um, as well as cyborgs and cyberization. Um, what is the ghost in the shell? Well, the ghost is just basically analogous to the consciousness or the concept of you, yourself, or the self. Um, and I suppose in a non-spiritual way, the soul, who you are as a person within these... Um, within your meat puppet body... Yes, yes. Or in the, in Ghost in the Shell itself, um, we're far enough in the future where people are integrating technology into their bodies. Basically stripping out the meat to the point where you start wondering what is actually left. If you basically replace all of yourself with robotics, with cyborg technology, what is left to, to truly call you? Well, the ghost is that thing. It's your consciousness, your soul if you will, your ghost. And if you're wondering what a manga is, it's a Japanese comic book, for those of you who might not be familiar with the term. So hopefully, G.I. Joburg listeners, you're up to speed with at least some of the lingo that we're going to be dropping in this podcast. But we are going to talk G.I. Joe up front, and our opening round, I suppose, will be dealing with the new shit. Joburg listeners, it's 
with great glee that I announce G.I. Joburg is in possession of a <laughs> defiant launch complex. I never believed this day would ever dawn. It has. It is good. For the most part. <laughs> with one or two um, major, if you, if you want to hang on to the negative shit, uh, exceptions. But this beautiful, beautiful restored specimen comes to us from a gentleman called Ronald Hoff. He is a uh, G.I. Joe playset and vehicle restorations guy from the looks of things. I mean, he's also involved in politics and some other deep shit. But <laughs> on the G.I. Joe front, he is, um, well, he has a Crimson Guardsman uniform hanging in his cupboard, I'm told. Greed, ambition, and ruthlessness. <laughs> uh, and he restores and buffs and polishes up G.I. Joe toys like new, like no one else I know, and he has sent us an exquisite Defiant launch complex. No great success story comes without a price, however, and unfortunately, the Postal Service drop-kicked this enormous box. I mean, it must have taken a pretty strong guy to do that. <laughs> but they slam-dunked it, they rolled it around a little bit, um, and the result of which is the gantry door is a shattered blue mess. Uh, that would be the right gantry door for any um, anyone who just happens to have a spare one lying around and, you know, it's gathering dust. They don't, don't know what else to do with it other than send it our way. Uh, so yes, the one that is indicated R, which is, if you're looking at it from the front, on the right. Uh, anyways, enough, enough um, plea for help. Uh, that was shattered. There were one or two other cracks here and there, um, which Paul using his supreme skill, has managed to reinforce, glue, fix up in ways that are non-obtrusive and do not hurt the playset. And it's pretty much 100% functional again. We are, of course, hoping to get some insurance claim action happening, but guys, we've got to defiant. <laughs> <laughs> First impressions, if you please. It is fantastic. I think even after seeing the flag, this thing is impressively large, like really impressively large. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. Even with the breakages, luckily, it's not a ton of breaks. And overall, it's intact, which is pretty awesome. I'm glad it didn't come in like a thousand pieces and it's completely unsalvageable. It's fantastic. It makes me giddy just to think about it. Mm, the parts that are there and present and uncracked, unbroken, are beautifully restored, given clearly what uh, was uh, either a very thorough bath or actually a chemical treatment to bring out the whiteness. There are reproduction stickers all over this thing. It is beautiful. And I marvel at the layers of playability that this thing has. The flag is terrific. It is a great place to launch and park your aircraft. For the most part. You know, you run out of space after about two or three jets. But that said, it has one function, and that is to launch jets. You can increase that function, as G.I. Joburg has done, by raising it, giving it more internal play space. Mm. But the internal play space on the flag is limited to the tower. The internal play space mm. on the Defiant is intricate upon intricate. There is so much going on. There is practically zero negative space on this thing. There are walkways, there are ladders, there are molded details, there are installed details. There is a teleport machine, there is uh, space to stow gear, there is a cockpit with detailed seats, and I mean, the, the detail is mind-blowing. The Defiant shuttle itself has this crazy, like, 
geared arm system to lock uh, the, the occupants into their seats and give them a control uh, bank. The, the way the cockpit opens, I mean, I've been aware of that, but it was news to Robert um, that it kind of raises on two plastic arms, so it kind of folds back on itself, unlike what you expect, which is just a, a regular flip up. It's just brimming with foot pegs, spaces to occupy, to play in. It fires the imagination like I don't think any other G.I. Joe toy can, because this is the sum total of, of G.I. Joe's true space adventure vehicle. I mean, you could talk about armor bots and you can talk about the Starfighter, but those things do exactly what it says on the tin. The Defiant is full of surprises. It's just... It's, it's the best. It's the <laughs> best fucking toy ever produced, like ever. Okay, I've said my piece. <laughs> yeah, what I wanted to say about the Defiant, and I thought about this uh, ever since I saw it, and we started messing around with it, playing with the damn thing, really getting to grips with it. I mean, there were about two days of us uh, sort of toiling around and trying to do little fixes, finding materials, as Steve mentioned earlier. Uh, for me, the Defiant is a treasure box. As you all may already be familiar, the Defiant and the, you know, the whole launch complex, the whole design, it's kind of like, it's like a box, right? But it's got so many nooks and crannies in it. It's got so many uh, little hidden functions. It's got Easter eggs, uh, and not actual Easter eggs left by the Easter Bunny. Uh, but it has these great little um, nuances to it that if you're a Joe fan or you're somebody who's been collecting the toy line for a while, you're going to see details in the Defiant that are going to pop out at you. I'm sure some of you already know about this, but uh, like, for example, the Snowcat, one portion of the Snowcat is actually in the molding of the Defiant. Um, boring! No, it's not boring. It's boring. What? Molded details? Come on. Why don't you talk about like, the fact that... I'm getting to that. Oh, I'm uh, allowed to have uh, a cherry on the top of this moment. They dock. They dock. Oh, my goodness. Oh, God, yes. The space station and the spaceship can mount each other. Mm, and you can open a passageway between them, have your figures crawl through, and execute zero-gravity maneuvers inside the space station. Hijacking. <laughs> there are foot pegs on the underside of platforms, so you can have guys, as they would be in zero-gravity, on the ceiling. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a section there that's meant to be a sleeping bay. Um, and, I mean, yeah, by all means, use it as a sleeping bay. But, I mean, you could stack that up with uh, like sort of headless spacesuited Joes and have those as, as spacesuits, you know, for the Joes before they enter the airlock. Uh, there's there's so many little Easter eggs in this toy. There's a seat in the inside that they kind of swivel upwards. They and slide. They look so cool. And when you when you actually put a Joe in there and you realize it can do that, it's it's quite a whoa moment. <sighs> the okay. whole thing is a treasure trove of awesome. I mean. I don't even want to get into the bridge right now because we're just going to end up talking details. I know, I know, and this doesn't make for great radio. I, I catch myself. You might as well. well wait until our review because it's going to be cool. It's going <laughs> to be epic. But of course, this toy comes with a massive caveat. Even a minty mint specimen that is well looked after has extreme fragility, like next level eggshell kind of fragility. There are so many points that can be snapped broken just in the regular day-to-day -day admiring of this toy you know you you elevate it into launch position something could break off you turn a cannon and something could break off uh it's just it's it's hardcore it is very heartbreaking <laughs> uh to have this toy because you know shit's gonna break 
just resign yourself to the fact. Unless you're the kind of collector who, I don't know, carts your toy home and never touches it again, uh, this will be a difficult purchase to admire. What am I saying? Watch yourself. Don't commit it to the post office. <laughs> Fuck those guys. So, so we got the Defiant. Um, I'm wondering, Kuja, have you got on anything new? <laughs> Anticlimax. Mm, no, I, I can I can hold my own with the Defiant. I think. Um, if you got Joe readers out there, I'm I'm gonna open up uh, IDW's GI Joe Infestation again. That's the first part. Um, maybe you remember it. A couple Joes on a yacht, maybe an undersea um, Cobra base. Maybe you remember it. If you don't. Uh, pick it up. We might be talking it in the near future. So if you're looking for good Joe stories, let's start there. Um, I'm going to get into it, and I'll, I'll chat with you guys on, on Twitter. Cheers. Cool. Short and sweet. So I'm wondering, is there anything in the post box, the pit, for us? I've got something. Um, I know that you also have some. Or maybe you have something, Rob. <laughs> um, we put up a unboxing video for the Defiance. Uh, you know, shot rather poorly and... Uh, and and really hashed out and thrown up there quite hastily. With a lot of heart, though. A Absolutely, lot of heart. a lot of honesty. So if you uh, care to check us out on YouTube, uh, we received some fantastic comments already. Uh, guys commiserating with the breakage, and also guys just saying, "Wow, we're so happy for you." Awesome. Uh, which is exactly what we want to hear. We're happy that you're happy that we're happy. <laughs> <laughs> because sense. we are happy. Uh, so it's G.I. Joe Book's in a good, good, good place. We are loving our collection and we're just loving doing this podcast and uh, loving connecting with people out there. Well, good go. <laughs> one of my favorite comments was from Frag Minion who said, That thing makes a glass window look sturdy. <laughs> <laughs> so, we have a definitive sculpt to discuss um, and I believe this was uh, proposed to us by Kuja. Do you want to? You want to set it up for us? Sure. Um, basically, kind of threw it out on Twitter. Uh, maybe I found Facebook. Just uh, kind of wrapping our minds around uh, tech figures. Uh, maybe their specialty isn't fighting. Um, maybe it's on the hardware side. So uh, secondary on that would be maybe some personal tech. doesn't have to go with that figure uh, that's not lethal, but uh, you, you found some uh, use for it. Uh, and who, who wants to kick it off? Rob wants to kick it off. <laughs> do you do you want to kick it off? <laughs> I think I will because I think you've been a long time listening. Oh my god! <laughs> oh, oh G.I. Joeberg, my answer is going to be quite apparent. It's Scoop. Oh wow! Well. <laughs> no. What, who what? else could it be? He comes with a fantastic backpack, um, which allows him to broadcast the footage um, and record the footage which he is filming on his absolutely gigantic, fantastic 80s. Uh, probably VHS recordings <laughs> camera with radar. With radar, I mean, you know, he well, he'll GPS know where everything's coming from. It. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing, actually, to me that um, Scoop is always my go-to guy. I mean, he fits into almost any subject or topic we discuss. And... Wow, not shoehorned at all. <laughs> no, 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 definitely not a round peg, square hole situation. Scoop is the man in any arena. Well, some of us have, you know, an, an ultimate favorite, um, and mine ha happens to be Scoop, and my mind just kind of drifts toward him whenever I think about um, <laughs> these sorts of things. Um, 
And again, I, it completely fits. I mean, the technology he's using is, is very interesting. And I, I mean, I've always enjoyed uh, films. And the fact that you have a G.I. Joe that films things is always fantastic to me as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I like his entire tech setup. I mean, it's so removed from how we record things today that it, it feels retro, but at the same time futuristic too. Hmm. Which I, 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 I like think that. is quite awesome. Yeah, that the uh, Scoop Scoop is my tech man. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the stuff that he comes with, and it's his helmet it has a little mic on it as well. Um, <laughs> so that's some more tech there. So he well, can. Mine does. <laughs> <laughs> uh... Anybody got a spare headphone mic? <laughs> Just lying around. Scoops mic, anyone? Scoops mic. You well, don't. It was easily lost. <laughs> well, well, everyone else on this on this podcast was dreaming of uh, Terradromes and uh, Defiance. <laughs> my dream GI Joe purchase is is the the mic for Scoop. <laughs> Modest dream. Oh my goodness, it's it's true though. It's true. It's Rob's first Joe. I think uh, everyone's first Joe leaves a massive, massive impression. My chosen tech accessory is not from my first Joe, but came pretty close to being that first Joe. What can I say? Those first impressions last, man. They become a formative way for you to play with your toys. That first team of Joes kind of set the mold that you would follow for many years going forward. And this guy is very much that for me. The figure in question is 1986's mainframe and his obscenely oversized computer. That piece of hardware has got two, count them, two floppy drives. Damn, so. That's one more than most computers at the time. The one is molded to have, obviously, what looks like a floppy inside it. Because that little plastic gate is closed. And the other one has one sliding out of the front. Which is wonderful. A wonderful anachronism. The screen occupies only <laughs> the smallest top section of the, the, the hardware. Uh, it's got a well-molded QWERTY keyboard. Um, it's not quite accurate to QWERTY, but it's got buttons individuated in the sculpt. It doesn't have anything that attaches to it, but it's got a dainty carry handle, which I am surprised in all the years that I've had this figure, which is probably in the 30s of years, uh, that little handle has never broken. Because let me tell you, folks, this accessory saw a buttload of action. I wasn't lying when I said in my preamble that your early figures form the mold that your play patterns then follow for years to come. Mainframe was always front and center on the team because our mission was invariably always going to involve computers infiltrating some installation that required Mainframe to bring this clunky piece of material along with him to access the computers, to hack their computers on site. In fact, for many play patterns, the entire reason for the mission was basically to assemble a bunch of guys that could assist Mainframe get to his objective. He was the center of, of what needed to be done. It was all about him. And it was all about this little gray portable computer, which probably weighed about six or seven kilograms. I don't know how many ounces that is, but it's a lot, <laughs> okay? You could bicep curl that and get really ripped. Um, and it was very close to my heart. 
So yes, my mainframe was always running around with this thing, and it's hilarious to see a guy in grey running into battle with this, this massive computer thing. Uh, and that is my pick, as anachronistic as it might seem, for number one tech accessory. Because why? Because it has very, very fond memories for me. Next, gentlemen. That was strong. <laughs> I know, right? I, um, wow. There's so much uh, really awesome technology in the Cobra side of things. Jeez, with cables going into helmets, with the really interesting backpacks that, you know, are sort of semi-trans-atmospheric. Debate's still out on that one. Join us for another episode when we talk the target. Um, there are helicopter backpacks. There are televipers that have, or at least on the cartoon, have the things that they hack appear or the things that they're thinking or want to say appear on their faceplates. Uh, but we know that they're all kinds of crazy hackers. Uh, we're not really sure if they are sort of modified. Um, but, you know, we have the televipers. We, we have a plethora of stuff to choose from. And I am going to choose something that's going to seem pretty obvious. It's called the Techno Viper. Not the whole Techno Viper, more specifically his backpack. I really love the Techno Viper's backpack. It was a figure, or I was introduced to the vintage uh, figurine when I was younger. Um, and it was so cool that he could, you know, attach these three different accessories uh, to his backpack. Um, they all had some kind of purpose, uh, you know, that related to. Uh, repairing vehicles and whatever on the field and uh, when I was younger with you know him being purple and everything and and being masked and this was kind of uh, my childlike mind's approach to anything that was masked in Cobra was a cyborg that was just how my brain worked it out so if you were a heat piper cyborg <laughs> and so everything with a helmet is a cyborg Dave uh, eventually was like what the hell dude no no those are people in there and the only reason he said that is because when I, upon watching the G.I. Joe movie, Pythona knocks the helmet off a Crimson Guard and I saw it as an actual human. And then I was like, I thought Crimson Guards were robots. You know? <laughs> so, Techno Viper, I thought he was a robot too. But anyway, it turns out he fixes stuff. And I, I really enjoy the idea that this backpack has got all the things necessary to fix a down to his tank or what have you on the field. And, and the whole vintage line of G.I. Joe in Cobra, there's no medic. So, you know, this guy fixes robots, right? I mean, I couldn't just be like Cobra leaves people to die as a kid. Anyway, I love the Techno Vipers backpack. I love the fact that it's modular to a degree. You can stack those tools up any way you want. The hoses that run to them, uh, the way they grip the handles, both the modern and the vintage. Uh, it makes for a lot of fun. It makes for something that's totally needed. In, um, in your Cobra side of things, you know, when you've got G.I. Joe's blowing up his tanks or treads getting smashed out, you can send your Techno Vipers to fix those in. But to keep it in line with the episode, you've got your Techno Vipers to fix your bats. When your Battle Android Troopers get too holy, Techno Vipers come in, get those guys ship shape and ready to attack. So, yeah, Techno Viper backpack for the win for Paul. I like that. It's, it's, a, it's a good choice. Although, I don't know if I'd agree with you on, on them coming out to fix bats. Because, I mean, they're so, like, dumbed down that, like, whoever came near them would probably be seen as a target. You drop them out and they just, they just wreak havoc everywhere. So, I don't think no, they that's... fix bats. I don't know. That's no, well, me. I mean, you could make it that way. I mean, that, like, you're right. It doesn't have to be. But, yeah, it could be that. You could see a situation where Techno Viper would come in handy uh, with a bunch of bats. Firefly probably rolls with Techno Vipers. Probably. 
I see Firefly rolling with Alley Vipers personally, but uh, sort of an idea I've got with um, the one Joe story that I've kind of got going, you know, it's in my head too when I just want to relax sometimes. I often have Joe operatives, their disguise um, within a Cobra facility is often a Techno Viper. Because I imagine a Techno Viper gets sent to fairly highly secured uh, Cobra installations because they're always needed for their expertise with repairs or maybe creating stuff or that kind of thing. So if you're a Joe disguised as a Techno Viper, you really have access to a lot of Cobra secrets. So, I mean, sure. that's, that's another use for the Techno Viper for me at least. Well, I'm, I'm going to roll heavy on this one if you gents are already done. Oh, step away from the mic, South Africa. Long Beach. No. Step it up. It's not like that. I'm bringing the whole world with me. No, I, I just looking over Twitter this week. Um, had some people drop some suggestions. Uh, Joe fan 82, liking the uh, sonic fire dial tone, says he sees go to. Um, I, I like him. Uh, that you don't often see that color blue on Joe's. It's a little bit of a confliction. That's not bad. You got to think about the data viper because he doesn't belong in the Joe line. I mean, he looks like a high tech pyramid head. But there is like a, a curious thing about about a data viper that I wish they could kind of sculpt for maybe those thick uh, shins the data viper has. Maybe hollow one of those out and put it on a wild weasel's leg, turn it into an ankle holster. I could see that. But the characters I looked at were techno viper, like Paul did, and, and Paul made some good points there. I the color purple always felt a little too regal to be carrying wrenches around. So I, I didn't, I don't know about that. I'm still conflicted about that. Um, I do kind of like Techno Vipers tools. You know, they work good in a, a, a gladiatorial setting. Um, if you got Joe's duking it out, but I, I, I kind of settled, uh, with the help or with some assist from, uh, Joburg Twitter, uh, European Joe's kind of brought something to my attention about a character that I was on the fence about anyway. And that would be Televiper. You know, I'm going to go old school. The thing that's noteworthy about Televiper is the fact that he's in sweatpants, basically. And you got to have that guy seeing all the angles. So he's going to be on a knee half the time. I, I always imagine Televipers to be kind of like the people that, uh, you know, they know lighting. They, they got to make Cobra Commander look good or they're going to be out of work. So those guys are always swirling around action. And like a lot of the Joe creators, um, they kind of put an interesting spin on Televipers. You know, they got a signature. Um, they got that text that goes backwards on their visor, you know? No, but, uh, I think you got to take that into consideration because who's our boy Friedman, uh, the writer on the, uh, Joe, uh, G.I. Joe cartoon, right? Yeah. In that Serpentor series, if Steven wasn't so slavish to the schedule, I, I missed one of the recordings when we were talking it. He mentioned that, uh, there's a scene where the, one of the, uh, Cobra twins says, Televiper, he's insulting your emperor do something or something like that. And all of a sudden you just see a couple televipers go into kind of like a, kind of like a predatory kind of expression. And it says hate on their visor. Huh. Do, you, do you remember that moment? Of course. Yeah. And that kind of makes you go, Oh, wait a second. Friedman sees the televipers as TV. Like he says, Oh, there's like somebody that's calling him out. Let's trash him on TV. Cause you know, as Nixon says, it didn't happen unless it happened on TV. So um, I think the televipers are very relevant. And it just so happens uh, when European Joes did a profile on the televiper, they noticed uh, his his number on the card, the G.I. Joe. Uh, uh, G.I. Joe has, like, playing cards or something. And uh, anybody want to hazard a guess what number in the series he is? 69. 
Oh, I was going to say 69. Mm, nicely done. Okay. That's funny. 21? I think you know the real 89? number. 89? What other important numbers are there? Maybe we'll catch up with that number later. But no, I'll, I'll go with Televiper. <sighs> Stop teasing him. We all know it's 33. It is. One last bit on uh, on the Televiper. Now, if you zoom in on Televiper's uh, card art, there's actually a reflection on the camera lens. I think it's uh, the JFK uh, Lincoln limo. Just playing around. Um, <laughs> anyway. Who's he filming? Is he filming the, the Baroness in States of Undress? Uh, you know, it, thank God for, for pitch and zoom on cell phones. Uh, take a look. He's guy at, Cobra, at the Cobra offices. No, just the particular one that they painted for the uh, card art. It's that guy. G.I. Joe could be so rich on the screen if you just do the villains right. Holy cow, Televipers could be outrageous. If G.I. Joe is blowing up like the superhero genre right now, I bet you we'd get a reality-style TV show or film shot handheld like Televiper and Scoop reporting from the front lines, man. You'd get both sides, and it would be fucking insane. We'll get there. So that's that's my definitive tech officer. I think with definitive tech, you're going to see my favoritism. Uh, I'm going to go with Firefly's cell phone. I mean, the dude had a cell phone in what, 84, 85? When did he drop? 84, just like this episode, man. No points for guessing that that was a toy from 1984. I mean, he still has a big forehead, but, you know, I I do like the cell phone type. He's got a melty face because he's got horrific burns. Stop it. That's why he's the faceless master. It's not because he, like, blurs himself in every photograph taken of him. <laughs> Stupid. Um, no, it's because he's so horrifically burned. That's why he's Firefly, man. He's an arsonist. That's how he spent his youth. Burning shit. Anyways. You've given me tech, an opportunity man. to think of a tech officer, though... He's not really a tech officer. He's very much on the front lines, albeit after dark. But his technical aspect is what swings it, I suppose, in a kind of a gray area kind of way. I really enjoy, and this is non-lethal, so it fits, kind of fits the topic. I really enjoyed, or enjoy (laughs) in the abstract, the visor from the Night Viper. It's a two-part piece. It gives him night vision capabilities. And this was something that I had no concept of back in the 80s. So when Night Viper dropped, it was the first time I'd ever seen that thing. I was like, well, this is stupid. Is it supposed to be like a head cannon? Uh, and that was while I still had it. Because the little posts on the Night Viper's helmet, they snapped. And immediately thereafter, the visor disappeared. And I was sitting with this like green, it looked like a German hand grenade. Uh, the lens, basically the front part, and that it always was a quizzical piece for me. And why the reason I call it mythical is because like I never had the damn thing. Now I appreciate it. Now I'm like, oh, that makes so much sense. That is that figure's thing. The Alley Viper's face mask is bogus because you pull that down, he can't see shit. The Night Viper's is awesome because you pull that down, all of a sudden, in next to zero light conditions, he can see. So he's coming for you. And it's game over. Of course, as children, we twisted his file cards information, the information about um, them spending a lot of their time in darkened environments like barracks with no windows, uh, trying to sneak up on each other. Uh, We took that information about the flashlights, being able to burn out their sensors, 
And unfortunately, we just, as children, we just ramp that up to mean that if you shine a flashlight at a night viper, it knocks him out. So he had this huge Achilles heel uh, that any time a night viper sneaking up on you, hey, Joes, get your flashlights. Click. Wing. And then, oh, down goes, aye, aye. down goes another night viper. It burns. <laughs> Fortunately, yeah, no. in reality, that's not how it works. And the night viper's tech is rock solid. But yeah, he's a cool, teched out looking night fighter. There's a lot of technical detail going into the figure's design. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna make him my tech officer. Bam. Nice grab. That is fantastic. And talking of uh, technically beautiful details, um, let's talk about Ghost in the Shell 2017. Um, this is the second film that the South African contingent of Jojo has seen together. The first one was Jojo Retaliation. So I know we all agree that it looks amazing, but I think we disagree on whether or not we enjoyed it. <laughs> What say you guys? What is your general impressions of the 2017 Ghost in the Shell? It's a star vehicle for Scarlett Johansson. Uh, and that's how obscure or more obscure movies are able to attract killer budgets. you got to have a big star at the top. But unfortunately, it skewed the script to the point where it's all about her character. And I think that's not necessarily what Ghost in the Shell is all about. But it did offer somewhat of an origin story to the character of Motoko Kusanagi, which I never got from any of the animes, which always kind of launched you in when things were kind of on the boil uh, already, and you were kind of catching up with these characters of this organization called Section 9, and their their cases, and their investigations, and their policing of cyber crimes, cyber terrorism. Anyway, so it, it was nice to get that, oh, we're starting at the beginning this is a good jump on point. She's learning her skills and her ability to operate as a good investigator and cyborg and all-round person. I mean, her battles with personality and her own humanity, that, that's kind of at the core of Ghost in the Shell, I guess. But it was more peripheral in other presentations. In this one, it was the entire focus. And I just thought to myself, well, I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm, if I'm down with that. But... It was just like every other presentation of Ghost in the Shell to me in that it was boring. <laughs> like, it managed to, uh, to to stay consistent with other presentations of Ghost in the Shell material in that it made me... F well, actually, I, I think I was dozing off at one point. I mean, we saw it in this insane theater, uh, the Scene Extreme, which is wonderful. Inflated prices, but at least you get extremely comfortable reclining seats very wide, so you're not jostling for elbow room uh, with the person next to you. So I was like... And that's extreme with an X. <laughs> Unlike when you normally spell extreme. Without like, an X. Yeah, but this one doesn't have an E. Oh, okay. <laughs> and no Ks either. That's how extreme it is. <laughs> Paul, what do you think, buddy? Okay, I'm going to preface this by saying I am a huge fan of the original production IG feature. It is a slow film. It is a very ponderous film. And I've loved it um, ever since I've seen it. I just didn't really understand it as much as I would have liked to when I was, uh, you know, in primary school. Uh, but it's, it's a film that Because you understand it so much more now. I totally do understand it a lot more now. Oh, gee. Um, I've always loved the quality of that movie and I have also fallen asleep in the original Ghost in the Shell but it was like after the third or fourth time watching it and it's just, you know, because it is just chilled out in a lot of ways. Anyway, 
I've enjoyed pretty much every iteration of the Ghost in the Shell uh, franchise. I've enjoyed the manga. I feel that the manga, oh, I mean, the manga, the Japanese comic is the original source material. And I've always enjoyed that take, um, although that is extremely convoluted, um, as is its sequel, Man Machine Interface. Uh, Standalone Complex, the TV series, what was a very cool uh, sort of way to inject a bit of action and uh, the philosophies and the technology and the conspiracies and whatever that go on in Ghost in the Shell and make it a lot more digestible and easier to enjoy. And that was cool. But this film, wow. Visually, I love it. Um, I think it is a little over the top in some respects, but it's really great. I think the, the guys behind the visuals from, from the conceptual design through to the execution with the effects and all that, are oh, it's phenomenal. It's a phenomenal looking film. In fact, if anything... If I had to own it for any reason, it would be because I'd love to have it in the background because its soundtrack and its visuals merge together pretty well. What I cannot stand is Motoku Murphy Kusanagi. She walks like Robocop. She acts like Robocop. I understand it's part of the storytelling mechanic in that version of the film, but it drives me crazy. On top of the fact that she's a weak-ass character, she is not... A veteran I get that um, they made a I don't know I just it felt off for me and I really do try to divorce myself from the original source material when I go and watch a film adaptation of something because it is so easy to fall in love with the original and not separate yourself and compare it the whole time uh, but objectively it's a very confusing film well it's a film that's confused it's trying to tell one story then it doubles back on itself then it tells another story which is less important and then it tries to wrap it up by creating some kind of uh, antagonist for the whole thing for them to all take out and it's really not necessary and yeah it was just silly I, I just felt it was unintelligible um, in a lot of ways well and it starts out as a cops versus bad guys let's track down, let's track down the, the terrorist yeah. but then the terrorist is a sympathetic character someone from Motoko's past and then the bad guy it becomes ambiguous who the baddie is. Oh, the baddie is the corporation. No, the baddie is the guy. The one guy. Not any of the scientists who were killed. Well, whatever. Spoilers. So, okay, there was just some confusion. And I suppose it's all summed up by this maxim. Your hero is only as good as the villain. So you, Paul, saying that uh, Kusanagi's character was weak source... Well, she didn't have anyone decent to play opposite. No, she didn't opposite. have to reflect anything. Yeah. She didn't have to... You know, her struggle was, was an internal one. Uh, I mean, there's a scene where she visits her, her human form's mother. I mean, like, oh, okay. Anyway, I, I, I didn't dislike it. I, I'm sounding like I did. Yeah. So I think the person to save this right now is Robert Lee. Yeah, yeah brother. <laughs> well, first, let me hear a cuter. What are your general impressions? Jeez, where to go to just... Like no, no, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> it's fair, actually, that we hear what Kuja says. He, even he agrees. Well, it's a. Uh, okay. Um. Well, <laughs> I, I didn't spend Kuja's too opinion. much time the first flick, the '95 animated movie. And, and let me just first say this: that animation is uh, infinitely more interesting than than uh, photography for me. But it's a Japanese movie, right? Yeah, it's a Japanese. Uh, it's a, It's originally a Japanese product. It's made by Production okay. IG, well, which is one of the best animation houses in Japan. No, I mean if you're a Joe fan, your uh, your knowledge about animation probably just extends to uh, oh Christ. What was it called, Stephen? I'm sorry, I'm blanking, brother. 
G.I. Joe, Resolute. There you go. Thanks. Um, thanks for that assist, South Africa. Slam <laughs> um, dunk. But, uh, like, Japanese storytelling is, is very interesting, and it's hard to access because their intention is not always to identify a villain. You know, I don't even know if the first Ghost in the Shell is about, you know, honestly, like, there'll be parts of the movie it'll go into a monologue, a character monologue, and they'll start doing rhythmic beating. And honestly, I think that's kind of like why you often fall asleep during Ghost in the Shell, because it lulls your mind to its level. And so I can watch that movie anytime because it never breaks rhythm with you mentally. So I love that movie now, having examined it. I believe in that movie, uh, their project 2501. Is that accurate? That's correct. Yeah, so I mean, that establishes 25 and 1 right there. Um, speaking about the new movie, I think the first scene in the new movie, you're introduced to project... 2571. Yeah. Um, I don't know if anybody's good at math out there, but that's essentially the first scene of the movie informing you that 33 has hijacked this narrative. And it brings the story down to a personal level and not a philosophical one, much like they did with Star Wars. So uh, I thought that it was pretty, and I'll agree with Paul. The soundtrack was tight. Um, I could hear that a couple times. Let's be more fair. The scoring was tight. Oh, yeah, that's accurate. I, I didn't really, nothing really resonated. I mean, I could go into Scarlett Johansson as an actress or an actor, but, you know, uh, just to keep it thematic, uh, the tech was okay. I didn't like how they showed him getting mechanical eyes. Um, I did like the dogs kind of humanizing that character, but you, you didn't need to know. Like, I thought in the cartoon he just had some high-tech shades on. It never really occurred to me to ask that question. Uh, it was pretty, but it was forgettable. Um, the animated movie for me is one of those kind of in the top 10 because I feel like you can watch it uh, at different chapters and you might get something different from it. Um, so what do you got, Rob? <coughs> i got to clear my throat. <coughs> and how do you link it? How do I link it? Link my throat clearing to this thing. <laughs> to G.I. Joe. Well, just like clearing my throat. Wise ass. <coughs> well, now you got your play out music, Robbie. <laughs> Edit nice. Oh, oh. It's going to sound so good. I hope so you don't good. die. Oh, Let uh, me clear uh, my throat. <laughs> yeah, Rob's up on old school hip hop. It's time. true. I'm, 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 very, I'm a huge fan. I love me some uh, two packs. And uh, Biggie Old Man. <laughs> Who else? Biggie Old Man's my favorite. Um, uh, what's his name? Peanut Dog. <laughs> he's pretty good too. Let me some Peanut Dogs. Um, he's, he's, he's always spliffing. <laughs> Subtle. <laughs> Subtle. <laughs> it's so wrong. <laughs> anyway, um, so what did I think of the film? I think overall it kind of holds together well in its own right. If you're coming at it as a Ghost in the Shell fan, if you've consumed almost any iteration of this, I suppose not franchise, but phenomenon. This, this phenomenon. <laughs> oh, that's a hip-hop song, isn't it? Something like a phenomenon. Bass. Like a phenomenon. Treble. Something like a phenomenon. Hey! Like a phenomenon. Yeah! Don't know the rest of the words. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because Ghost in the Shell is... At least for me, is, is kind of the exploration of, of what is self, what are you? Um, and that's a lot, I think, presented in a lot of the different versions of Ghost in the Shell, is 
what is it to be human? At what point does technology get so good at reproducing the ghost that when does an AI become so alive that it it inherently is its own self? Um, it feels like by renaming her, or at least kind of make, having her discover her own identity um, and not knowing who she is from the start, they kind of push that question back a little bit. Mm. It's kind of like they have to, it's not just questioning your own self. Who am I, not what am I? Yeah, exactly. It's um, it's it's what you do that matters, not what you are. Isn't that the question that they that they repeat oh God, like three times? Yeah, but, you over the but, they, but they rehashed that age-old sci-fi trope about about oh, I just woke up, now I need to find my backstory. Whereas initially, the way that character was always portrayed was she doesn't care about her backstory because she acknowledges that she is something new. She questions Any kind of it. backstory is irrelevant. Yeah, she questions it, but she kind of she moves forward from there. And well, um, I think that that might be uh, the triangle stepping in to kind of interject their narrative, and that would be that there's a line in the flick where a woman says, "You are what everybody will be in the future." That's kind of what they see for us is an integration of humanity and technology. So. I would say they're not great storytellers, but that's what it is, I think. I suppose in a way they're kind of presenting, at least trying to introduce this concept to the general public, in a way. The concept of cyberization, or at least, you know, the integration of technology into the human body, which, I mean, I think there's there's a lot of people that go through that process, or at least to a certain degree today. Um, we're on the cusp of integrating technology into the human body. Um, if you think about amputees and the replacement of their limbs with, I suppose at this point, very crude sort of cyborg parts. but well, just crude by sci-fi standards. It was weird that they pushed back um, the question of who she is. It's like she she discovers who she actually is by the end of the film, and that seems to be enough for her to discover who she was originally. But for the major in, in other medias, um, it's a general question of existence and consciousness. It's not about her specifically. She knows who she is, but she still questions what it is to be who she is. <laughs> My way of understanding it is, what is that moment when your physical self has passed away? What remains, and are you actually living on? You're not. There is a break in those things. I mean, this goes to, I suppose, every every person's personal beliefs. But if you were suddenly to have your consciousness transferred into a cyber brain, it's essentially what you were at the time of your death, frozen and transferred but that biological entity has passed on you as that physical flesh and bone thing has died you will not be able to transfer you will go to wherever the human consciousness goes when it dies uh that's either i don't know darkness oblivion heaven uh eden whatever um or coming back reincarnation. or reincarnation of course uh but that replica of yourself that copy is a copy. It's not you. You do not live. This is not your bid for immortality. This is something else mm. that starts new life with your memory, your essence, as its point of departure. So I think that's and that was the coolest moment for me and something that I had never thought of before. But she wakes up in this new body and she says, "I can't feel my body. Why? Because it is synthetic." She, as a human could feel the biological presence of a body around her essence. But with that essence now in 
the synthetic body, she has no sensation. There aren't billions of nerve endings to give her that kind of input. She's not in, maybe there's data that, that would, would read as pain or pleasure, but she hadn't learned to read that yet. In fact, she gets shot in one of the, the initial action sequences and she doesn't seem to have noticed or felt it. So she's still obviously learning the limitations of her body or the, she doesn't really have any kind of pain reception. I guess it's like Data from Star Trek. He has pain receptors, he has pleasure centers. These things are, can be toggled on and off depending on whether they would serve any purpose to him. You know, he can sense fear if he wants his emotion chip enabled or he can disable it if he wants to be fearless. Yeah, because he understand it's, understands it conceptually, not on a human level. I feel like I've gone off track here. <laughs> no, How no, does no. this link to G.I. Joe, I think, is the million-dollar question. Okay, well, I mean, the other big change I found in the film itself was that they, they pushed back where humanity is technologically um, in, in this era of, of the film. In most other medias, the concept of a fully cyborg person is, is fairly common. Um, often the military have them, and also cyberization, I mean, replacement of human parts, be they um, entire limbs or your eyes or internal organs, is fairly common or very common. I mean, it's, it's completely common. In the film itself, they've kind of pushed it back to where the major, Moriko, is the, the very first, ostensibly the first fully cyborg being. And how I felt that kind of connected back to Jaijo is that as in the film, the 2017 version, where they're, where they're kind of experimenting, they're moving to this age of cyberization, Cobra actually has many examples of experimenting with, we've seen it before, with biological um, experimentation and, and enhancement. Um, but they also do a lot of technological enhancements, um, cyberizations of their soldiers. And I thought that was quite interesting, kind of link that back to G.I. Joe and how Cobra itself is exploring the limits of technology, the human technology um, integration. And not just that. So it was that with the, the sort of the cyborg stuff, <laughs> but also memories. Um, another big thing in Ghost in the Shell is memories and can you rely on your own memories to inform who you are? Because there's examples of people being able to, to hack into your mind and basically replace your memories or to completely uh, take over your body and control you. It's also kind of... is. I suppose in a way similar to the brainwave scanner, where Cobra is able to convince you of almost anything. You aren't yourself, they can make you think you're someone different, they can uh, give you different memories, and I thought that was another big influence, at least in the way that I saw a connection between Ghost in the Shell and G.I. Joe. So I was wondering, I mean we kind of explored it in the definitive sculpt thing, we were kind of talking about external technological attachments and, and whatever else to characters, but what examples of uh, cyberization are they actually in Cobra, if you guys know? I'll, I'll jump in just because you find people haven't heard my voice for a little bit. Um, uh, Cobra actually has quite a few instances of cyberization or sort of artificial enhancement or human enhancement. In some cases it's fully confirmed, in other cases it's speculated, or should I say grossly debated, is Major Blood's arm, which is believed by some to be completely mm. cybernetic, like a cybernetic prosthetic limb. Whereas other people believe it could just be a brace or some kind of armor or a normal prosthetic limb. Sideshow took that ball and ran with it and made it a complete um, cybernetic attachment, which I thought they pulled off really well. 
um, and it sort of su suits the era, pardon me, because it's an advanced piece of tech for the 80s. I mean, it's an advanced piece of, piece of tech for the 2017s, <laughs> but it looks uh, backwards. It doesn't quite have the same aesthetic as things do today. There's, um, uh, like I said earlier, um, I believe most Cobra Troopers were robots. You know, they were these faceless uh, automatons. That's what I used to believe they were until, you know, having watched the animated film and, and then starting to actually read the comic book more. You know, that, that, that was a realization. But before then, I mean, I was reading things in the file cards and I can't uh, specify exact characters now, but I mean, there's you know, pilots that have been enhanced somehow, like infantry dudes that have been enhanced. You know, you got something like the Heat Viper, he's got his helmet, he's, uh, you know, that whole thing is connected. How deep is that connected into the actual soldier, you know? And we know that Cobra doesn't have any sort of human restrictions, and we know Cobra doesn't have any moral obligations towards human safety or, you know, adhering to sort of health standards. So they're just going to go forth and and find the guys who want to take themselves to the next level no matter what and they're gonna put all kinds of stuff in them so that's one way I mean that's one place I can think of Cobra just has no restriction so it's very easy to believe even if it's not stated that a lot of Cobra officers have some kind of um, not the ground floor guys but your specialists have some form of alteration augmentation is actually a good word for it it's the word they use in Deus Ex the video game um, so yeah, I can imagine there's a lot of augmentation. Whereas the G.I. Joes have a lot of external augmentation. They use a lot of devices and things that sort of augment their military speciality. Whereas Cobra has a lot of things that just augment them as people, but don't. Because maybe they go crazy from being overstimulated or something. <laughs> perhaps it was coincidence, perhaps not. But in G.I. Joe Infestation, it explores this very conversation. So I definitely would point people at that again. But I got to bring up kind of the most interesting conversation in the animated flick from 95 for me was uh, the conversation where they're all acknowledging that their opponent may be the very person that supplies their tech. So I think that you could run with that in the G.I. Joe world. You could say that in the future, you know, G.I. Joes carry a lot of umbrellas tech, so to speak. And all of a sudden, they run into a case where they find out that, you know, Cobra or whomever is designing their stuff is the villain, but it's in them now. So, like, how do they extract that? But also that, that gives you an opportunity to ask the question, which G.I. Joe is the kind of guy that would be afraid of technology? Um, maybe Easy Out is Outback. Uh, who do you guys see as the guy who's kind of a, a techno pariah? A technophobe. Yeah. You said it, Outback is actually a fairly good candidate for somebody who doesn't, uh, probably doesn't want to get himself involved with too much technology. That's an interesting question. You know, at, at what point do you make a sacrifice? Not to get political, but I can definitely get Faustian. The devil is technology. You know, it's, it's a door so somebody can look in and see what you're up to. That's a metaphorical devil, you know, because we, we don't know who could leverage us. I think that that's, that's the question that, uh, that I got from, from Ghost in the Show is that at what point do you question the people that are holding the leash? Um, yeah, I mean, we've all let the devil in, but the door swings both ways and you can see the infrastructure now. So we may be the ghosts, but you know, we can, we can see the shell too. I mean, the two can inform each other. I don't know what I'm saying, but, but you know what I'm saying. 
I think we can all take our own message from what you just said. Well, that's it. I mean, if you're looking for a theme in Ghost in the Shell, like, it's asking a question, right? Like, at what point do you lose yourself? No, very much so. I mean, in the original movie, the bad guy is the government. Yeah, essentially. It's like, it's like there's no well, face to the villain. It's just politics and bureaucracy and, you know, Section 9 actually protecting a lot of, like, human rights and freedoms from those bureaucrats. Because mm. Project 25, what is Project 2501? It's not a robot. Project 2501 is an advanced computer program that, um, that found life, a soul clung onto code. Yeah. You know? It became so advanced, it became It became essential a, a AI. vessel for a soul. Yeah. Not just an autonomous AI, but like a living being. Mm. You know? Oh, I... I... I learned a new interesting Nogi, 33, by the way. And then it was greatly, it was represented by her as a child into this new world because she is essentially now a child, a creation of, of a machine seeking a soul and machine with a, and, and code with a soul. And yeah, so, sorry, but that's always been my interpretation, or at least the visual I understood from it. Like, where's the division between being human and cyborg and, you know, when does one override the other? Or, you know, how vulnerable does one become when one's you know, memories and things can be hacked, when one's thoughts can be hacked, you know, that that's something scary, you mentioned, you know, we talk about televipers, you know, can you imagine Cobra having televipers and they could hack your brains, and Cobra could have instant armies, that's how they would rule the world. Instead, we well, could a, talk about metaphor, Overkill. They, they do. Overkill? Oh. Yeah, Overkill. Did you know that in the Devil's Due comic books, Overkill, the character, was dusted off and was actually Robert Skelton, the Saw Viper, who killed more Joes in one session than Cobra has managed in all of its existence. But that Saw Viper took on the name Overkill because of his impressive body count. (laughs) And in battle, he becomes injured and gets cybernetic enhancements. I've never read this comic book series. I believe he eventually gets killed. Spoilers. Um, But for a second, for a brief glimmer, there was an opportunity for a G.I. Joe comic book to explore this very, very concept of reanimating a dead, legendary soldier to come back as a robot. And that is insanely cool because Mm. the original presentation of overkill is that he is completely synthetic even down to his brain and in ghost in the shell they argue that you need a human consciousness to pull the trigger similar thing they talk about in the new robocop or the recent robocop reboot that you can't have robots policing humans you need to have a human consciousness in control and so in the case of this legendary soldier on the Cobra team, this Saw Viper turned overkill, therein lay a huge missed opportunity for Devil's Due to explore this. Instead of just giving him a cybernetic arm and a cool targeting system, he could have been piecemeal replaced and made essentially into a cyborg. And we could have had our... G.I. Joe nod to Ghost in the Shell right then and there. Oh, man. The mind... I mean, yeah, I just shudder at the thought of what cool storylines you could have built in around this character. Because 
back in the original presentation of that Saw Viper, he was pretty compelling. I mean, he was an absolute pig. Mm. And also, a, like, a brutal, brutal man. Something that Cobra needed more of, you know, to kind of iron out this ridiculous Saturday morning cartoon version of Cobra Command. Mm. You needed hardcore troops like this guy, with his scruffy beard, his M60 machine gun, and zero regard for human life, or his own orders. If he had a chance to mow down a group of G.I. Joes, he would do it with relish. Yeah, man. Did you guys ever play uh, Far Cry uh, Dragon's Blood or whatever? Very much. <laughs> you know, yeah, Rex, Rex Power Cult could make a nice honorary Joe cyborg. <laughs> That's actually quite cool. I wish I had read those comics, or that that they had actually taken advantage of that. No, uh, go Devil's Due on that one. Yeah. Other examples of Cobra dudes, or like probably the one that springs to my mind when I think of um, someone being augmented, is um, Vapor always springs to mind. You know, well, not his name, but his his face. <laughs> his face. I mean, he was completely overhauled, at least in the head department, to kind of allow him to process um, visual images much faster than the human eye could. And he could only operate for so long before he completely, I think, what burned out his... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. His optical nerve. Because, I mean, he's basically got a shunt wired right to his eyes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, man. That, that, I'm sure, caused nauseating headaches and migraines. So, yeah, they're not a healthy bunch, those vapors. Mm. Yeah. But the file card does go on to say that they are unbeatable in air-to-air combat for those 30 minutes. Yeah, and and then they're done. Which is why I always reasoned that the reason the Hurricane VTOL has two seats is for a Strata Viper to ferry it into the action, and then once an engagement takes place, Vapor takes over. He annihilates every enemy aircraft from the sky, and then... Leaves a Vapor trail. <laughs> gives the stick back to... Uh, the Strata Viper. Very funny. Well played, Paul. You're a funny man. He ha, is a funny ha, man. Ha. <laughs> so funny. What I find interesting, at least if you look at it, cyberization, at least initially in the last, what the first kind of decade or so of G.I. Joe, is put forward as, as an evil. It's something that the, the bad guys do because they have no limits. But eventually G.I. Joe kind of has their own cyberized guy in the form of Robo Joe, which kind of blurs the line of what G.I. Joe will do to actually keep the fight going. Mm. Um, I can't remember mm. his exact backstory. Well, I've got the file card at my fingertips, so dear listeners, stand well back, because here we go. Ooh, standing back. I am stronger. I am faster. I am Robo Joe. Apparently that's cribbing Steve Austin. Anyway. Greg Scott, a scientific engineering genius, was working in his laboratory one night on a top-secret plan for robotic battle armor suit needed to fight Cobra in space. Suddenly the lab was raided by Destro, who managed to capture some of the plans and fatally wound the young inventor, leaving him a shattered shell of a man. G.I. Joe's scientists used the remaining plans to rebuild his broken body, and Robo Joe was born with a permanently integrated bio-armor spacesuit linked with silicon wires, computer chips, and muscle tissue. Now this powerful half-man, half-robot fights alongside his Star Brigade teammates, seeking justice and revenge on Destro. Oh. He doesn't design robotic battle armor anymore. He is it. Oh, and the poor man can't go to the beach. 
<laughs> Hooded Cobra mm. Commander 788 hates this figure. But uh, let it go on record that I love it. I do. I do. I really do. Out of the whole Star Brigade Fat Spacesuit editions, yeah, Robert Joe's one of the gems in that. Hand in that uh, treasure trove of, of, of gems. In that wealth of great toys. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't laugh. I'm not. I'm serious. I yeah. love I love those figures. I really do. Okay, so I just I like the ones that have two arms the most. That's like I'm not even messing around either. Well, you know, those troopers are perfect examples of cyberization because the guys who don't have two arms, uh, like Duke and Heavy Duty, um, they must have had their arm removed. Where else would <laughs> they put it in those spacesuits? I I'm just telling you guys. I mean, they opted, they elected to have surgery. To fit into these mechanical suits. Isn't that right, Rob? That's how we used to play it. Yeah, that was. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We would, like little baby we would, bodies. We would hold the sculpt in our hands and we would wonder what the hell happened to these arms. So yes, <laughs> those Joes were all walking around with severed arms so they could integrate <laughs> into their armor suits. Oh, shame. Poor heavy duty going from one external tech to becoming internal tech. You know, because he went from having that eye... Thing, that eye shield, you know, and that big rig of guns, to being a big rig of gun, 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 plastic missile firing gun, bomb. BFG. BFG. Yes. We used to play those as like Gatling guns. Mm. We used to take the missile out, and they were. Um, no, we were the same. <laughs> guns. No, we we kind of. I think we. Uh, and not to one up, I'm just saying we just sort of as like plasma guns, uh, like. That's sort of one up, dude. To a child, a Gatling gun is the business. It's the ultimate, oh. just spewing out those bullets at a thousand rounds a second. Just in space, that's all. Brilliant. That's why we thought of it that way, you know. Oh, we weren't. Nerd. We weren't about physics. We were just about shooting shit. Dude, I didn't have much choice. I had an older friend, and he was like in space. Okay, back in the room. Let's go. <laughs> So, the Joes had some cyberization going on in their camp, too. Seems like the ethical line has been blurred. What was once true blue American homeboys taking the fight to the insidious Cobra organization who have no qualms or ethics about experimentation and turning their own troops into synthetic, horrific nightmare zombie creatures, G.I. Joe had a zombie of their own called Robo-Joe. Floating through space, kicking ass, with bright orange highlights. He wanted it, though. I can definitely see, you know, I would like to see more G.I. Joe animation, because it's been the best representative so far. I don't like when they start putting bullpups in everybody's hand, because you got to remember G.I. Joe's about the specific weapons. So if we get some good, you know, anime G.I. Joe, that could work. That could work. Well, that's a good thing, because... I think if G.I. Joe was handled as an anime property, um, the Japanese had taken an American property like G.I. Joe, a popular comic book, and then adapted it into their own way, and, and were actually serious about it, then we would see something, I would, I would imagine, on the same lines as Full Metal Panic, uh, without too much of the sort of goofy, pervy humor. I don't think you'd get a lot of that in a, in a G.I. Joe adaptation, but a lot of the weapons would have a seriously mechanized uh, futuristic feel to them. Just popping in my head right now, Heavy Duty would have, his whole gun rig thing would definitely just, it would look sick. It wouldn't just look like 
two shopping carts with Gatling guns stuffed in them, you know what I mean? And yeah. it would transform into its own independent mech. And or kind like of a bike or something. It would you know? walk around behind him and then he'd be like, Come on, 30-30. Let's go. Kiru, kiru. Yeah, but do you guys agree that, like, the data viper doesn't really fit in with the rest of the troops? Like, is it just not right to make G.I. Joe anime? I kind of see the data viper as a modern... Uh, sorry, because I have one, and I dig it. I see it as a modern rendition of a televiper in a lot of ways. It's a fobbit. It's not something that runs out into the battlefield. It sits in a forward operation base and controls drones, but... It is not tethered to a huge computer system. It can control drones remotely. They can put uh, him and five other, uh, five of his buddies on a in a Cobra bug or whatever, and they can operate their drones remotely from that thing while it's moving. For example, it makes them very dangerous. Yeah, Cooch. If mm. if Joe and Cobra weren't as seriously couched in technology as they are. I might say, yeah, sure. I mean, if, if if all they had going on was blue shirts versus green shirts in the jungles of the world, then maybe the conversion to anime wouldn't be as seamless. But in the G.I. Joe world, we have mecha. We have spaceships. We have jet fighters, uh, missiles flying everywhere. You know, like, the vehicles seem to have a lot to thank um, Japanimation for. You know, I see, like, missile mm. pods stacked on the side of a mean dog and i think mm, that's that's thing i've seen in a lot of anime very anime-esque you know, yeah. like the super packs on the vf1s uh the veritech fighters from from robotech or, or the Valkyries, Mac- if you prefer macross yes yeah. of course um you know it's just like missiles everywhere yeah that's that uh, yeah gi joe wouldn't have an awkward fit if you were reimagining it as anime uh, and I would certainly pay good money to see the ladies of the Joe and Cobra teams represented in anime style, because um, sure. you, know, you know those boys play toward their their target market. That's for damn sure. Those animators. Mm-hmm. You'd also have a show that would have some very interesting and engaging hand-to-hand combat, uh, because anime has a lot of that, and it's well-directed action. And, uh, I, I mean, the toys would be very interesting as well. I mean, Japan, in my humble opinion, aside from, well, you know, G.I. Joe's are an American toy, but aside from G.I. Joe, I personally feel that most of the best toys in the world come out of Japan. I mean, my wallet can vouch for that because I spend a lot of money on them. <laughs> They'd, of course, be very expensive imports made with mixed materials, PVC, a little bit of metal construction. They'd be hell of an articulated figure i suppose in the in the ilk of uh, microman or maybe i have a good smile major kusanagi in my hands right now and she can do amazing things two-handed pistol grips are a cinch and that's something that i wish i wish the standard gi joe could do uh, easily enough but cannot also just to uh, clarify that's not the figma Kusanagi, that's the Good Smile Chogogun figure, uh, Kusanagi, that came as the driver of a Tachikoma vehicle. So this is the same size as a G.I. Joe toy. Ooh. Ooh. And she's sexy. Kind of a rarity, um, actually, in Japan. Mm -hmm. Uh, Figures that size. Envy me. (laughs) I got one. Yeah, I, I think a Japanese version of G.I. Joe would be pretty awesome. And you'd probably, I mean, for all the reasons you, you guys have mentioned, and probably 
I'd imagine they'd even play up the ninja aspect even more. Resolute is a great case study for G.I. Joe anime because the ninja action would be handled that way. Yeah, like it. properly, you know. Yeah. Not not that the comics didn't handle it properly. I mean, it was more like the, no. it was it was in there. It's what influenced. It's the Sunbow cartoon that it was absent from. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it definitely influenced two of the major characters of G.I. Joe, but it didn't take over. Mm. I, at least I don't think it did. <laughs> I think in an anime we'd see a hand-to-hand combat between Cobra Commander and Hawk. Like, mm. full-on anime, like, multi-leveled, multi-dimensioned, uh, like, throwdown. Fighting in the control room of the Cobra Terradrome. And then they're duking it out on the on the runway as jets are coming in. Like, almost inspired by video games. But it'll be the two leaders. Like, they also have like, supreme martial arts ability and skill. Like, the Snake Eye Storm Shadow dichotomy has been played out to death. Let's see Duke go up against Destro, or, like, Scarlet have to take on the Twins. Let's see other interesting matchups, and them being played out in the anime martial arts uh, style, action Mm. style, where everyone seems to be able to do hand-to-hand, like, to the extreme, which which is great. I would love to see that. Do you think that there would have been more other media versions? Like, I mean, not just like an anime and a manga. Do you think we would have got more video games? Ah, it's hard to say. It depends on the popularity because although there's a lot of anime in the world, there aren't a lot of video game spin-offs of those anime. I mean, mean, I've been a fan. I've been an anime fan since I was like eight, nine. And I've been exposed to video games, like Japanese video games and stuff like that for a long time. And... Yes, there are a slew of Gundam and Gundam-related video games out there, uh, but not as many as you may think. Uh, there's a lot of Dragon Ball games out there, but there's a lot of there's games based on Ranma, there's games based on Macross, uh, but just not as many as one would think there would be. Uh, I mean, I think for Macross, I think there are about 10, maybe 15 uh, really good Macross games that have come out of Japan. When I say really good, I mean decent, well, you know, playable. I mean, over, I mean, Macross is also a 30-year-old property, for example. Well, there's so, 13 more games than G.I. Joe, ostensibly. Oh, exactly. Quite. And I mean, also, bear in mind that the, the G.I. Joe games were made by the Japanese. <laughs> uh, pretty much the, the two on the NES and the arcade game, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, those are the only real important G.I. Joe games. Those three games were all made by the Japanese, and look what they did with that, uh, with that license. I'd like to think that in the toy realm, not only would we get the action figures and vehicles, but we'd get a third entity of toys which involve model kits. Yes. G.I. Joe model kits. You can get a whale at a 1 to 100 scale. You can get the entire slew of vehicles and playsets at a more affordable small scale uh, with minifigures that uh, are either, you know... Semi-posable. Semi-posable, or you can get them one-to-one, like G.I. Joe equipment that you can put in your hand. (laughs) Or, and and this is probably the customizer's wet dream, G.I. Joe toys that are... or G.I. Joe model kits that are the same scale as the toys themselves Mm. at uh, a lower price point, because... You're doing all the construction. Mm. You're going to get sprues of parts. Build your own tomahawk from the ground up. Wheel by wheel. Bomb by bomb. And I know, like, the G.I. Joe toys are construction toys at their outset. But these kits would 
have a greater element of of actual construction instead of like you can do it blindfolded without the instruction manual at all uh, for the most part. No, these things are proper construction toys. As I say, on the plastic sprue, in plastic colors, you could get more detail that way. You could make them more easily customizable or paintable. Uh, yeah, I mean, Japan and most of the Far East is is model kit crazy. And to be able to expand that into G.I. Joe as well, smart bomb. That would have been amazing. Kujo, do you agree the Japanese would have done uh, G.I. Joe better than the Americans? No. But, I mean, it's <laughs> oh, two different, co- it's two different societies. <laughs> by the dawn's early light. I don't know the what anthem. What the And the rockets rattler. <laughs> the bombs burst in the... I mean, jeez, there's warfare in your anthem. Dude, you need to go to war, clearly. <laughs> True. With true, true. And the fact, the fact you won that one, right? Okay. The fact that you guys know that much of our anthem means that the televipers are doing their jobs. Um, Yep. (laughs) Japan has at least perceived honor from the outside looking in. You know, there's more subtlety to their culture. They're more about like you know enjoying the simpler things. Maybe that's not right, but maybe kind of like as Ghost in the Shell's animation might suggest, just lower impact. Like, you can definitely fall asleep, like we said. But, I mean, America is in your face. We love drama. I mean, you guys know this by now. G.I. Joe is, uh, it could it could go anime. Um, I don't necessarily agree with all the different variety and sizes of toys. Um, I think that there's a lot of that going around as we speak. I think there's, like, Crayo figures. And, and I'm, I'm going to quickly jump in and just say, no, I don't yeah, think I a Japanese G.I. Joe would be better. But... I like Japanese. I mean, the Transformers is, in a lot of ways, more Japanese than it is American, you know, and it's still a successful property. Mm. So, you know, uh, I mean, that says something. I think Michael right. Bay might disagree with you. He's managed to uh, ram it right up the Statue of Liberty's ass, but um, but Takara still makes the toys. Yeah. <laughs> but the interesting thing, um, I think we all watched a video recently on YouTube where um. Toy Galaxy. Yeah, I think it was Toy Galaxy mentioned that the, the continued push for the production of uh, Transformers toys came from the American side. Mm. Where, like, they would have probably have ended those lines that they're making of toys that were, that the Americans kind of um, said, these are Transformers now. They probably would have ended it if it were not for the Americans pushing. Had it um, not been for international demand. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, so it's kind of like a two-way street, like the one influenced the other, and then the other one kind of went off its, on its own and did its own thing for a while. Absolutely. Came back together. The United States is a massive consumer pool. Uh, it eclipses Japan like tenfold easily. Mm. So, yeah, if you want to make money, you pander to the West. Mm. Oh, I don't know what that means, John. Um, I will say this, uh, do you guys have any, since we're all varied in personality and stuff, uh, maybe Ghost in the Shell is your favorite anime you lean on, but do you guys have any kind of personal picks if people are out there maybe saying, oh, I want to watch what Steven's watching? Oh, uh, okay, well, I guess it makes me, uh, the first lady for a shave. Uh, I singled you out. My favorite anime, G.I. Joe Resolute. Next. <laughs> nice, I like it. Well, other than Ghost in the Shell, which, um which is brilliant and it's, it's different versions um i've i've consumed uh, uh standalone complex the tv series 
as well as Arise, which is a prequel to the original story, um, which which kind of set everything up probably better than the 2017 live-action film did. I would probably recommend probably a goodie, but an oldie, an oldie but a goodie, uh, would be Cowboy Bebop, is probably one of the best that I've ever seen. Shinichiro Watanabe. And, I mean, the music in it is gorgeous, it's very pared down, they, I think, what, there's not even 13 episodes, maybe, in a film? No, it's more. So it is 22 episodes. Okay, well, tw- only 15 episodes were aired. Yeah, so it's it's very short. It's very concise and to the point. And the movie. And the movie as well, um, which is kind of caps caps everything off. It's very very good. Um, that's mainly what I've watched, and probably a bunch of Gundam series. <laughs> <laughs> I'm slowly uh, expanding my stuff that I've seen of Japan. Okay, it's gonna take a deep breath here. You still got more, huh? Oh lord, here he goes. <laughs> no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm good. Hey, you know what? I've got legs here. I can run with it. Okay, seriously, uh, Ghost in the Shell, the original. Innocence is a like really amazing visual film. Uh, crazy deep. Akira, you gotta watch Akira if you want to really touch anime. Whether you like it or not, you still have to experience Akira. It's just phenomenal. Macross, not Robotech, ladies and gentlemen. Macross, there is actually a difference. Not just Macross, Macross Plus and Macross Frontier. Do yourselves a favor, check them out. And the feature film, Macross Do You Remember Love? Okay, so we can decry a lot of the Robotech love out there. Sorry, you know, I mean, I'm just messing with you. You can love Robotech, it's okay. I just don't like Harmony Gold, and I'll put that on record. <laughs> Cowboy Bebop, as Rob mentioned, also by the same guy and equally as awesome. Uh, Samurai Champloo, or Champuro, if you prefer. Brilliant anime. Uh, great teacher Onizuka, because I know it's completely got nothing to do with military or action or intrigue, but it's a fantastic anime. You guys got to check it out. For many of you, I'm sure you all know, I'm a huge Gundam fan, but that doesn't mean all Gundam is good. But if you're old school like me, check out the original 0079 Gundam series. It's just recently been re-released on Blu-ray uh, in HD format, and it is well worth the price. And Double Zeta, oh, Zeta Gundam, not Double Zeta, Zeta Gundam, Z Gundam. Uh, do yourselves a favor and get your hands on that. Phenomenal. And the most recently uh, released or adapted OVA for Gundam called Gundam Thunderbolt and Gundam 8th Mobile Suit Team, which is a ground-based Gundam anime. And it's very nitty-gritty. And for those of you out there who enjoy military stuff, you're going to feel right at home. Even if you don't dig Gundam, that's something that you'll probably get into really easily. There are many more. If you want more recommendations, by all means, hit me up or hit us up on the group, on the on the Facebook group or on Twitter or whatever, and I'll be happy to send you a long and exhaustive list of Paul's favorite animes. All great animes that Paul really enjoys and wants you to watch too. Nice. Kujo, do you, do you have anything you, you want people to watch? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, ex- I started exploring anime probably a little bit later, but I would definitely recommend uh, Space Dandy. Two seasons, pretty, uh, pretty irreverent. Uh, it's, it's just great animation. Every time you're on a different planet, it's a different animation house. It really brings something interesting. Space Dandy's uh, phenomenal. Sorry, I, I actually forgot about it. <laughs> nice. I, I, th- I think, um, I think we've cooked this lady. Wait, we, we've cooked this, this meat. <laughs> anyway. Think we can stick a fork in it. This lady's shaved. Yes. Ooh, I love that. Um, it's metaphors. So, oh, uh, I, I, I'm going to throw in an anime pick before we uh, waltz into the night. Votoms. Thank you. If you're familiar with uh, a mech, which is 
quite small and quite grassroots and very, very bare bones. It, it took the super mecha genre and bumped it down to its bare, 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 bare bones. The Scope Dog is your kind of mecha. Function over form in every aspect. It even took a real mecha like Gundam and made it look like, I don't know, some character designer's wet dream. <laughs> the Scope Dog is a cool and iconic mecha, but that's just your key into Votoms. The story is about a weary warrior called Kiriko Gubi, voiced by a Japanese comedian of the time. They didn't want to get a voice actor, they wanted to get someone with a very dry delivery. And this guy is swept up in a world gone mad. He's a fantastic lens to see this world through. And the world itself is very compelling to G.I. Joe fans because it's got a lot of very varied cool action. And of course a lot of that involves a very cool and compelling mech called the Scope Dog. And various variations of that vehicle. It's very good. It's probably my favorite and uh, might get a little bit too existential by the third season. But up until the end of the second year gold, it's fantastic. In fact, the third season is good too. It's the fourth that really throws off the mantle. But I suppose they had to make it about something deeper than just a guy fighting to survive. He could do that forever, basically, until he dies. It's got a very Mad Max-esque quality to it as well. Uh, dogs. Well, you start out in this kind of dystopian, massive urban sprawl. Then you're in a jungle world. Then you're in a complete desolate wasteland kind of planet. Then you're in a desert. I mean, it, it does have that beautiful trope, that Star Trekian trope of visiting exotic locales. But uh, the action is always good. The characters are always compelling. It deals with life and death and... In you between. know, it's <laughs> and love and companionship and uh, yeah, it's fucking good. But the vehicle and mecha design—that's my point of intrigue. And uh, I've got a technical manual for it, and it's just so detailed. Okay. Wow, the best mecha design ever. So real, so good. Touch me. <laughs> I think with that, um, so I got some social media I can lay down on the way out. Do it. Alright, I think this conversation is topical and poignant in this age. I appreciate you bringing that up, Robert. Uh, Jover Twitter, and and out Animal Companions, because they're well-deserved. I gotta put a spotlight on Forgotten Figures, because, dude, he's niche inside a niche. But he's gonna get a blue-fitted booby, because they're extinct, and they have a cool name, and he's never gonna forget them. So, Forgotten Figures, thank you for the assist on the uh, action figure info, and uh, enjoy that movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's blue. Okay. Yeah. The blue. Seen some action. All right, yeah, Joe Bird, friends, 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 oh. friends, friends, and, and fans out there. Uh, have a great one. See the movie. Don't see the movie. But do listen to this podcast. We'll be back sometime when we feel like it. This is Stephen Cyber Steve signing off. This is Robert saying enjoy life and and know who you are. This is the Paul that is the Paul in the world of the Paul that is my own perception of Paul's world podcasting G.I. Joe Berg.
Goodbye. <laughs> Beautiful piece of music that okay. <laughs> Haunting. You got like technology versus analog music. Half human, half robot Curtis uh powering down on the West Coast. Uh cheers guys. Cheers, dude. Goodbye, fans.